perfect is impossible. So let's strive for better and betterer. Tune in for inspiration and many challenges across the eight dimensions of wellness, emotional, physical, intellectual, spiritual, vocational, financial, environmental, and social. We make wellness fun and attainable so that you can feel awesome and do awesome. And now your host, Jessica Jake. Hey everyone, this is Jessica Jake. I'm here today with Cherie Johnson, psychologist, executive coach, owner of Coaching for Doctors at SKJ Consulting, senior consultant for The Potential Project, and creator of Respond and Recalibrate. She's a certified IRIST meditation teacher. She's Australia's leading doctor coach. And I'm looking forward to hearing about what all of this entails and what we could all learn from her coaching expertise and beyond. Welcome, Cherie. Thank you very much, Jessica. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, well, that's just so impressive. You've really done so much. And I know you've done even more than that list. So that was the short list, everyone. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us about what you're doing with the doctors you're working with and how that could translate to other roles and into our lives as well. Sure. So uh, the work that I'm doing with doctors is really um, primarily coaching one-on-one and then Uh, also in small groups. So that's our Recalibrate program that you talked about. So the coaching is about uh, future-focused skill development, but it's also about raising insight and and self-awareness. So uh, people, the doctors come for coaching for two main reasons. One of the reasons is for promotion, skill development, advancement. So they're seeking to get a new job, for instance, or they're Uh, trying to get onto a training program. And the second group are coming because they realise that their interpersonal skills or their internal management, their self-regulation, might need um, a little bit of work. Perhaps they need some skills that they don't have or they need to grow their confidence. And medical school spends very little time helping doctors learn about how to regulate their own emotions. In fact, for a very long time, doctors were taught not to pay any attention to their emotions as if they weren't a part of you know their whole person. Uh, we know now, of course, that emotions are involved in every single decision and that holding patients at arm's length or holding their own emotions at arm's length isn't giving them the right outcomes because near on 50% of doctors in most Western countries, not just in the US and Australia, um, experience burnout in any given year. So we've got a really big problem there in this skills gap for doctors. So so doctors come for coaching for skill development, um, learning how to read the signals in their body, their sensations, what to do with those when they're having these emotional experiences um, and how to look after themselves and stay well. We know that the error rate in care in patients is much lower when the doctors are well. And so there's an imperative really for everybody's safety that the doctor's be well. And as I said already, we've got a significant burnout risk for our doctors. That was before COVID. We've probably got a much higher figure now, in some countries particularly. So we're really looking to create safe spaces for doctors to be really honest about their experience of doctoring and to learn the skills that they need to do that well, to keep themselves well and keep their patients well. When we're working with them in small group, I work with another doctor and we have eight or 10 doctors in a group and we do uh, what we call immersive learning with them. So we spend six or seven months, sometimes a bit longer than that, um, really deeply engaging in this experience of understanding what is self-awareness, where does insight come from, um, what's the role of mindfulness and compassion in caring for other people who are vulnerable and unwell. Um, What's the impact of unconscious bias? What happens uh, 
you know, there are lots of patterns in health where people don't get the same kind of care, even though the intention is for everybody to have the same kind of care. That's not how it turns out. And the research is very clear that some uh, groups get different kinds of care from the health system than others. So we're really looking at what's the individual person's role in that as the doctor and how does the system uh, let us down and how can the doctors in small groups together uh, challenge each other and help each other um, come to terms with the mistakes and the emotions and the challenges that health represent for them. And then my role as the outsider, as the coach or the psychologist, so everybody in the room is a doctor except me, is to uh, bring that outside um, experience, that challenge, to, to perhaps advocate for patients sometimes, uh, to raise the doctor's awareness to their blind spots and to teach a lot of psychological theory and to have the doctors, you know, experiment and explore with what those um, things that they haven't learned at medicine, in medicine might do for them. So we're looking at mindfulness, compassion, emotional intelligence, um, what, what's the leadership really mean, what's the role of the doctor really, and really promoting much more partnership between the doctor and their patient. Um, so in terms of how does all of that relate to other people who aren't doctors, I think that we can all do well from those skills. That the, certainly the Black Lives Matter movement and many uh, other movements, we had a referendum, um, well, we didn't call it a referendum, but we voted on um, same-sex marriage in Australia in 2018. All of these movements are really um, using our meta, our meta skills, asking us to think about thinking, to notice what are our blind spots and our, our biases, but also to notice what's our emotional experience, what's happening in our body, because that's how we connect to each other. And we can't survive if we can't connect to each other as social beings. We actually need each other. And so I think all of these movements, our individual coaching, these big population movements where we're challenging some of the status quo and our small groups where we're working with our doctors are really about saying, um, you know, how, what can we learn and how can we integrate this learning into the way we are? And the things that we're uh, discovering are emergent. We don't know what we need to learn. We need to make space and time to really reflect uh, and share. And that's what the work that I'm doing really creates. It creates time, space, safe spaces for people to sit down and really look at what they're doing with an open curiosity, with the intention of learning. That's fantastic. That's amazing. And I can't imagine having a whole room full of doctors and having that conversation about their blind spots and watching that unfold. How does that work out? And as you get people to open up and you're in a group setting, what do you tend to see when you have these open conversations? It is, um, you know, you're right. It's incredibly powerful experience. I feel very privileged to be in the room always. And uh, we do some similar work with school principals and school leaders, and it's the same process. So I think essentially what happens is that the people who enroll in the programs um, have already thought deeply about uh, their level of comfort or discomfort, their level of fulfillment or satisfaction or it's very often described to me as their work-life balance is not okay. Um, you know, people are looking to have more harmony and more connection, more understanding, uh, less conflict in their life. Um, to, to think about it in the terms of compassion, we're all looking for more happiness or peace, whichever word you like, and less suffering. So I think the people who come to the program for whatever reason have come to a point of saying, 
they'd like to meet some of those needs uh, in their own body and very often they'd like to share those with people that they're uh, working with, either the patients or the, the students in their school or the people that they're teaching and mentoring. So they come already with a, a level of openness. It's actually incredibly difficult. The recruitment of bringing people to these programs takes a lot of my time and energy. Um, my doctor colleague said to me, well, you're asking people to be very vulnerable and then you're asking them to pay for it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, a, there is a challenge in the recruitment for sure. But I think that what happens once we uh, do find the people who are ready to do the work is they come into the work with a, a position of um, they're not open straight away. They're open to the idea and the possibility. And we work very hard to create a safe space. It's very, very important. My role above anything else is to create that safe container where people can do the work. Uh, and so we make very, you know, uh, clear and explicit uh, statements about people's safety and what we expect. We uh, invite them to co-create the rules and um, you know, we make assumptions that people have their own um, capacity to learn and that people have can find their own solutions. We ask more questions than, than telling. Um, and so we create, you know, we work very hard to create this space where people can feel high levels of trust, a high sense of belonging. Um, uh, uh, the, the doctors, we, we started initially talking about having all kinds of health professionals in the room and we learnt pretty quickly from the doctors that they only wanted to have doctors in the room. So I have my own um, issues about that, but I think you have to start where people are and uh, we know that people have much more empathy, much more ready empathy for people who they deem to be like them. So that, that, there are problems about that and we do a lot of work in the groups to shift people from that place, but we know that people start from that place and so we make it only doctors. We're in conversation about having groups like our Recalibrate program for health administrators and for other healthcare workers. But at the moment, we're really trying to refine and understand this is our fourth year of um, you know, what's going to be meaningful for the doctors. So we keep a very safe place, a safe space. And as the groups progress, so um, at the moment, the model is a masterclass for four hours. So it's a big chunk of time. We're online. We were very resistant to being online because we thought that people needed to be in the room to connect. And I will say that that is, is probably still better. But we've been really pleasantly surprised at how well people can connect online when they're meeting each other very regularly and it's a small group. So we keep the numbers under 10 for our for our immersive work um, and we make sure that people do have an opportunity to know each other well with lots of WhatsApp and other kinds of things in between. So there's an ongoing conversation. And so I think those are, those are the really important things. It's a safe space, there's time, uh, it happens over time, so over a number of times. People have asked us to provide the program in two or three-day blocks and we say no because we want people to go away and have time to process, feel things in their body, explore um, using the tools and the things we're talking about in real time with their families and at work and to be able to read some things and write in their journal and, and come back each time telling us about their experiments essentially because we know that the best learning is when you feel it in your own body and you see how it plays out for you and you feel it in your own mouth when you, the words come out of your mouth. And so we, we want to create time and space so that people can do the work. It's um, probably my own view is it's a bit of a failing of our modern world that we all want the quick fix. We all want to, you know, go and do a course in three, three hours and be 
an, an expert at whatever the topic was. And it's just my, my experience as a psychologist, as a, as a coach, as a teacher, um, is that that's not how we learn. You know, we right. learn over time with successive refinements and challenging and getting it wrong and reflecting on why it went wrong. And so we set it up so that there's time for that. Right. Yeah. And not only do people want to watch it in a quick three hour course, they'll hit that button on the video to make it play two times fast. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and perhaps the other thing that's been important is we don't record these masterclasses once we're in a group. So we do do a lot of recording and webinars and we have a lot of stuff available online and so on. But but when we're in this immersive context, we don't record any of those sessions. So we, you know, we try and recreate what it would be really like if we were physically together as much as we can. And I'm really impressed that you were able to pull that off and have it be as immersive as possible online with such small groups and not being face to face. That's yeah. Super yeah. cool to hear. The, the other thing that supports it is we have a we have a, a continuous community. So once you've graduated as a doctor from the Recalibrate program, you know you have the option. Not everybody chooses to do it, but to be a part of our Recalibrate alumni, and we, you know then we do have a live retreat every year for a couple of days, and we have you know monthly huddles where we're meditating together, and we do lots of things to really build community around these doctors we really feel very strongly that and the research bears it out that if we can help the doctor feel well and supported and connected and valued seen heard all the things that each every human wants mm. um, then you know they stay well they have much more longevity in their career it's much more sustainable the patients get much better care the organizations have meet their KPIs um, but most importantly the patients you know I, st I started this journey as a patient advocate so my original intention was uh, for patients to be heard and seen and I fairly quickly learned that um, the doctors weren't well enough in fact to deliver what the patients wanted a lot of the time and that we had to go back a step and help the doctors be really well first. That is such a crucial point and that's very interesting that you flipped 180 degrees from where you thought you were going with the program to then realize that they needed to feel safe and to be well in order to then as an out one of the outcomes you listed that the patients got better care and, and all those those other bullet points yeah it's very much still my driving point to my you know my drive my driving you know my purpose in life is about patient care ultimately but Yes, I did have to make a 180 flip and I do find that amazing myself that, I, you know, sometimes when I set out on this journey, I felt quite angry and frustrated about the providers in healthcare and, and now here I am being really an advocate for them. So, Right. And when you say it was very clear to you that they wanted it to be their in-group of doctors and be around people like them, which of course is natural and that's why we need to learn about <laughs> having our blinders on out groups and all of this yeah, by yeah. the end of the program though it sounds like you're around all these transformed doctors who then that wouldn't be an issue at the end of the program right like so if they really are doing that reflection and walking around doing their experiments and using the meta skills and checking in with their own biases and ways of thinking and all that then, then do you see that there might be a shift of their openness to people who 
aren't doctors towards the end? Is that ever? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a lot in what you said. Um, at the end of the program, I would say that they are, you know, really transformed. They're, they say that they feel completely different. Their interactions are quite different. People notice to them that they're different. They listen differently. Um, you know, they are more curious. There are many, many things that are different. But I wouldn't want to say that they don't have any more unconscious bias because that's inherent in humans. We all have it. And, of course, it's unconscious, so we're very often unaware of it. So the, the doctors who continue on in the alumni community and or continue on with coaching or some of them are involved in other uh, reflective practices, I think they are creating structures to try and keep themselves open and to have that continuous effort to have uh, accountability, have others helping them notice, you know, being welcoming, more welcoming of uh, feedback because that what they have now learned about how we all suffer from unconscious bias. Um, but for those who, who, you know, there are a handful, not so many, but there are a handful of doctors who don't maintain uh, the Recalibrate alumni and I don't know what they do. You know, some of them come and do the six months and maintain contact for a short time and then are on their way. I, you know, some of them may well still have lots of structures. I, I just don't know what they do. But I think for all of us, um, it's really important to recognise that unconscious bias is ongoing. It's a part of uh, the way our, our minds or our brains more particularly operate. And we, do, we are reliant on each other to see what's, what we can't see. You know, Jung said that anything that's real casts a shadow. And so I think that, you know, we're always casting shadows and we need people to help us see where they are and, and what they're blinding us to. That's fantastic. And I, I didn't realize the scope of what you're doing. And it's, I applaud what you've put together and what you're able to facilitate, if that's the correct word when you're coaching or, you know, enable, or I guess that I'm not sure what the right word is there, but it's quite incredible. Thank you. Yeah. So it sounds like in helping these doctors feel more comfortable in their body and be well and pay attention to their emotional experiences and really feel into their bodies that you're really considering polyvagal theory or the, the neurophysiology of their bodies, not just their thinking. And I'd love to hear your, what your program is doing to um, address that. Yeah, so we've been talking specifically about Recalibrate, but all of our programs, which, you know, people can see those online, are really um, underpinned by by the, um, by the mindfulness and, and teaching the skills of mindfulness. And so I think that the, the in principle that involves, you know, what are the qualities of mindfulness? Presence, acceptance, curiosity. These are the qualities of, of when we're in rest and digest. They're not the qualities of when we're in fight flight. So you know, when we're in fight flight, our sympathetic nervous system is in charge. Uh, our chemistry is the stress chemistry, lots of cortisol and adrenaline in our bodies. Um, and when we're um, you know, looking to be in a different kind of space, the space of learning and healing and growing and connecting, we're in that rest and digest space. So um, our parasympathetic nervous system is much more, um, you know, running the show, if you like. It's really never one or the other. It's really a balance between those two parts of our nervous system. But we're looking to really activate that, that big vein, that polyvagal system that runs from our brain all the way down through our abdominal cavity, past our heart, past our lungs. And we know that some very simple strategies can help to do that. So taking a nice 
long, slow breath in and a very long exhalation can help us shift our, our physiological state. And, and uh, we know I do a lot of meditating with the doctors, with the uh, school principals, really anybody who's working with me at some stage will have been doing some meditating. And meditating is not the only way to be mindful. And so I also um, do a lot of work with doctors and, well, everybody that I work with, with principals, nurses, healthcare executives, um, around how they can build mindfulness into their ordinary day-to-day -day activities. So we're activating this um, vagal nerve much more often. We're paying attention to the simple things we're doing when we're driving, when we're eating, when, we're, um, when we come home and we sit in the chair and we start to scroll through Facebook or to watch Netflix, you know, that we take a pause, take a moment to notice what we're doing. It might be only one long, slow, deep out breath where we, you know, breathe in and push our tummy out and, and then um, let our tummy relax and take a moment to just actually make a conscious choice about what we're doing. And so building these kinds of habits in to our ordinary daily activities means it's not something extra we have to add on, but it does require a conscious effort initially to create the habits, but there's tiny habits. Um, and some of your listeners will know of James Clear's book or BJ Fogg's book, um, B.J. Fogg's book is Tiny Habits and James Clear's book is Atomic Habits, you know, that we need to just start one by one, one small habit at a time, building them into our life so that we are really increasing our vagal nerve tone, that we're making um, a, a difference to the, our state in a conscious way. Now, our vagus nerve is part of our uh, autonomous nervous system, and so it's... Um, not in our control in the, the strictest sense. It's part of our unconscious systems. But we, by taking these long, slow breaths or stopping occasionally to, to pause and meditate or to do yoga or to be really present in the moment, these are all activities that can raise our nerve or our vag vagus nerve tone. So I think that um, the, the sort of fast, hectic life that we live naturally promotes our sympathetic nervous system. We don't need any effort to do that. The world is coaching us and helping us to be in fight flight, you know, all the time, really. Uh, but to really develop this other side that to keep ourselves in balance, we need to make some conscious effort and make a decision to, to change our habits so that we keep our seesaw, if you like, in balance. Um, and we, you know, because our life, the world is hectic and fast and unpredictable, uh, it's promoting one part of our nervous system's activity much more than the other. That's great. And I bet the doctors like hearing it that way because they're all about biology and body systems. Do you find that that's a, a good audience for talking about it from the anatomical or physiological? Yeah, they, they definitely like hearing research and they do like the anatomy and so on, but they're also fairly quick to tell me where the gaps are in my <laughs> understanding of physiology. So that's okay. I think that, you know, the simplest understanding is to think about our heart rate variability and it's a, a heart rate variability that is the, the speed of our heart when we breathe in compared to when we breathe out is a good indicator of well-being. And so I think that they certainly happy to accept some of those kinds of reflections they make their own decisions and they're individuals of course uh, Jessica so some of them like it some of them don't <laughs> <laughs> great so what are the top soft skills that we can work on so that we're protecting ourselves from burnout while showing up to help those around us 
Yeah, great question. I think, you know, so many ways to describe the soft skills. We we think of soft skills in two, the two ways that I've already um, alluded to, personal regulation and kind of inner management. How's my inner game? What am I doing to look after myself and be alert and develop and learn? And the second one is around interpersonal skills. So how do I connect with others? What are my relationships like? Am I influencing others for the greater good? Um, what's the legacy I'm leaving? Those kinds of things. And we tend to think about Tops about soft skills as um, power skills because they're actually really hard, but they have a really big impact. Um, and so soft skills is, I think, agreed across the world really now that it's a bit of a misnomer that we really want to find out. We haven't probably found the best word for it yet. But if I was thinking about personal regulation and well-being and interpersonal skills, I think the primary best first most important skill is listening and listening to ourselves and listening to others. And this is really is not just about hearing, this is about understanding, you know, seeking to understand, being present to another person with the intention of trying to understand what it is for them. And when we do that in a very conscious way, we actually give ourselves the best chance of avoiding our biases. We can um, limit the uh, impact of our biases. If we listen with the intent for learning, the listen, we're listening to learn, to understand, to be curious, genuinely curious, then we can get around some of those biases that might have us making assumptions and thinking that we already know. I like to say to people that the opposite of a learner is a know-it-all um, and a know-it-all doesn't have space for any new information because they already know it all. So <laughs> we want to really be listening. Um, uh, listening is, of course, a very important part of empathy um, empathy is different to compassion and I think we can't stop at empathy so if I was having to choose one I would say compassion but I'll just talk a little bit about empathy so empathy is really that uh, deep understanding seeking to really understand what it's like for somebody else not what I think it's like with my value system but what would it really be like standing in their shoes from their perspective of the world um, and compassion adds on action so compassion is really about relieving suffering so we sometimes say for, uh, for compassion that it's empathy plus action. So listening is the first skill. Um, compassion is the second that really involves and requires empathy and listening. Um, having a sense of service. So really listening and wanting to relieve somebody's um, suffering. It's the compassion piece. Uh, so that we're in service of them or a greater or a greater good. So we might be in service of, of the environment, for instance, or we might be in service of uh, making our neighbourhood safe. So what, what's the service changes our way of looking things. If, it, if I'm only in it for my own good, uh, that might be good for me. Perhaps it's good for my family. Um, but we really want to be, if we want to be an effective leader, somebody who connects well to others, somebody that others turn to um, because they feel safe with us. We really need this attitude of service. Um, a sense of responsibility, so an accountability. I'm responsible for my actions. I, I ask questions like what role do I play in this? What part can I um, attend to? What's the? Uh, uh, how can I help others engage in this more? It, would, it, would it help if I engaged more, if I made my journey more explicit or if I showed some vulnerability? What can I do in the service of this cause or these people? So some sense of responsibility, a sense of sharing. So that, you know, this idea that we are all in it together, that we share a common humanity. We're all seeking to be safe, to be not suffering, to have some level of peace or happiness in our lives. 
Um, and un, un, under all of this, this idea of self-compassion, so an ability to actually be kind to ourselves. So I, I haven't kind of got a, a little easy thing to make it easy to remember, but I think listening, empathy, compassion, a sense of service, uh, some accountability or responsibility, a willingness to share and um, and be self-compassionate to ourselves in so that we can be kind, that it's in this kindness that we're actually going to make it at the other end whatever the other end is so I think those are the things that I would really want to see people uh, develop those are the sort of um, skills that we work towards developing in our programs and perhaps the last one to say which is really a part of of all those skills all those um, attitudes and skills that I've already talked about is this idea of radical acceptance which goes a long way past tolerance you know we used to talk in the in the 70s 1970s and 80s about tolerance and learning to tolerate different kinds of people or di different people who are different to us I think we're really looking for um this um, practice of radical acceptance. And that's not about being a doormat, but it is about understanding that resistance is a big part of um, our own limitations, both for ourselves and for others, that if we can move, um, you know, to be in the reality, present to the real world, um, we don't have to be so reactive, we don't have to be impulsive, we don't have to hold bitterness and resentment in the same way. Radical acceptance doesn't mean we don't fight for our causes or our, our freedom, or our, but it does mean we accept the, what is real today and what we might have the power to change or not change. I think those conversations um, produce a different kind of connection, a different kind of listening and understanding, uh, a greater level of compassion for ourselves and for others. I agree. And where my kids went to school was where I went to school and my older sisters and on the walls of the cafeteria, they had a painting of all different people from all over the world. And it said something like teach tolerance. And it only yeah. was thought, what, what? You're like, I have to tolerate yeah. you. It doesn't yeah. sound right. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't tolerate, you know, our dog or we wouldn't right. tolerate our grandma. You know, maybe, maybe some people might argue that they do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we embrace them and we love them and we want to learn about, you know, you know we, we might know some of their faults or their difficulties, but we find ways to accommodate them and include them. And, you know, I think that that's a very different uh, way of being than, uh, you know, than tolerance. It, it, this uh, radical acceptance builds trust, it builds safety, it builds connection, and, and that's um, really what's going to see humans thrive rather than just survive. Right, more understanding and mm. blowing open some of our blind spots and yeah. really connecting for sure. Yeah. yeah. So those are those are great soft skills. And I like that you say that we shouldn't call it that anymore. And sometimes when I teach, I talk about hard skills, soft skills and inner game because it is it's yeah. true that it's it's maybe the wrong term so <laughs> yeah. it's hard to find the right term because people don't like power either and there are people feel that you know power skill is not the right word either but I think you know the, the reason we sometimes use that phrase is because um, you know when we're attending to our own inner game and really consciously curiously trying to develop our skills and our connection and our sense of our own body and our emotions and uh, understanding why we reacted this way or that way or why we had this or that bias you know, we're really, we're really in the place of, of potentially transforming something and that's incredibly powerful. 
Uh, and, and when we're interacting with other people and we're listening deeply with a pure intention of trying to really understand what's like for them in service of them so that we can change or reduce the suffering that's being experienced and we're taking responsibility for that, we're sharing the responsibility in, in the interest of, of the greater good and of relieving suffering and understanding each other. You know, that's incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why we use that word sometimes. I'm not sure it's going to be the right word ultimately, but it seems better than soft skills. Right, right. Very empowering to say the least. Yeah. And I love that you keep talking about transformation and asking those questions, which really changes someone from point A to point B yeah. or have that aha moment and yeah. that your work really encouraged encourages true insight and maybe to explain a little bit about what it means to have an aha moment Mm -hmm. or insight yeah why coaching is so magical and that space you're holding that container you're making is is and why you're insisting that no we're not going to do this in three days we need to spread it out right because maybe people um, still aren't clear on like what it means for transformation. Yeah. Well, I think if you think about, you know, have you ever had a really good thought when you've been in a hurry? Like some of I, I, I like to think I'm quick on my feet and I can make quick decisions and I've been in lots of work experiences where I've had to do that. Um, but really my, you know, the, the, the thoughts that I've had or the sensations I've had or the experiences I've that had, that have really changed the way I look at life have happened in the quiet moments, in the contemplations, in the, you know, this, where there's space. They don't happen in the hurry, scurry, hectic, frantic, you know, that's that's where we're in survival mode. So I think for, um, you know, it, it's, it sounds very simple. It's not simple to pull off, um, but making space and time, changing the way we prioritise, you know, giving priority to learning, healing, connecting, developing, insight, agency, empowerment. Um, you know, I think that, that's a, a real shift in the in the way we understand what we prioritise. You know, prioritising um, the competition of the world maybe isn't the right way for us anymore. It might have served us really, really well for a long time. It might have been the, the, the right way for a long time. But I guess I'm at the place, at least in my learning, where I'm not sure it's still the right way or perhaps it's only the right way, you know, in some places, not all places. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And one of the things I've been looking into is something called IFS and it's big on getting into self-energy and connection and curiosity and compassion and and all the good stuff, right? So I'm at that point in my life where I just want to show up and serve and What's cool is when it's less about me and it's more about how I'm helping and serving than all the other things that used to get in my way of, oh, no, what if I mess up? What if this, what if those thoughts don't happen anymore? Because it's not about me. It's about helping the people that are around me. Right, right. And so we haven't talked about gratitude at all, but I think that's another thing that the doctors discover. Um, I think the school, the people I work with in the schools, less so because I think they teach a lot of these days, they teach gratitude to kids, so perhaps they're a bit more aware of it. But certainly the healthcare professionals I work with are really amazed about how the practice of gratitude can change their experience, that they might still be working as hard, they might still be working as many hours, they might still be overwhelmed with complex, um, you know, health policy and payment schedules and difficult patient cases and so on, but they feel differently. 
And so, you know, these these practices, they sound simple. It's, it, you know, it's tempting to go, how could that make a difference? But the research is very clear. And, and to me, more importantly, the, the um, experience of people is, you know, consistently positive when they learn these these practices to savour, to appreciate, to to think of what they're doing as a service, um, you know, to, to go beyond empathy and recognise that compassion is alive in their practice, you know, and, the, and this practice of gratitude. And, and as I've said, the very long, slow, deep, one, one deep breath, I still think that's probably the best mental health strategy we can all use. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So one of the things I like to do is do a challenge for the listeners. Do you have anything in mind? Well, I think it comes nicely after what we've just been talking about. If uh, To try and build in this mindful practice in a way that you can build it into your ordinary everyday life. So choosing something that you do already that takes two minutes. The, the classic example is brushing your teeth, uh, but you might choose sweeping the floor or driving your car till the first corner when you drive out every day or um, when you sit for dinner, the first three mouthfuls of your dinner, and really making those your mindful practice to really uh, get your vagal nerve involved, get your body involved, um, as well as your conscious thought, your mind. So it's a whole body experience. Um, so it's a doing, you're doing something that you ordinarily do, but you're going to try and bring your whole presence, your awareness, your mind, your body to that activity. So uh, most people, when they brush their teeth, think about what the What's the time? Will they get to work on time? What do they need to put in their bag? Where are the children? Why are they fighting? <laughs> uh, everything else except thinking about brushing their teeth. So, you know, bringing your mind and body to the experience of brushing your teeth once a day or twice a day if you're brushing your teeth twice a day and really being present to that experience. And, and this is training your attention muscle. This is bringing your uh, full attention to the activity, the task at hand. The research says that um, 47% of the time we're not paying attention to that which we said we were doing. So as adults, nearly half of the time we're not paying attention to the task at hand. And so it's never going to be that we're going to be 100% mindful in our lives. But there's every chance that we could increase our mindfulness or our presence, our attention from um you know, 53% to 60% or 70%. And so I, the question I like to ask people is if you could be 10%, 15% uh, more attentive or more aware than you currently are, would that be of value to you and how would that enhance or change your life? And so the way to start doing that is to start practising. And so choosing one small thing for the day that you do regularly already every day or most days uh, that takes you about two minutes and bringing that into your into your full focus, bringing your whole mind and body and continuing to keep bringing your whole mind and body back. So when you're brushing your teeth and you notice that the kids are screaming and you're thinking you want to leave the bathroom and go to the kitchen and sort them out while you're still brushing your teeth, um, you know, ma making that active choice to say, no, I'm not going to. Obviously, we don't want anyone to hurt anybody, but in the ordinary run-of-the-mill arguments that might be going on between the kids, you know, being able to say, I'm, I'm going to stay here for 30 more seconds and stay present and continuing to bring your mind and body back to that which you chose every day for, for two minutes. That is a great challenge. And I think it would help us all to feel like we're actually alive versus you blink yeah. and suddenly 10 years go by and you say, well, how did that yeah. happen? And it's, and I think a lot of that is because you're you're not 
living in the moment. And yeah. another book I don't know if you read called, I think it's called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And he yes, says about, you write like 40% of the time you're in a habit loop. Yeah. And that is not even in your conscious control, right? You're just like yeah. automatically running through a habit yeah. loop. We want that autopilot, Jessica. Our brains can't cope with the huge amount of data that's coming in. So we mm. need a lot of stuff on autopilot like that. But the question is, have we got the right things in autopilot going on? Or are there some things that we might like to shift and be more present to, more conscious about? Okay. That makes perfect sense. No, I get it. Our brains, we'd explode if we, we really yeah, exactly. to yeah. all the data that's coming in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So balance, balancing it out in the direction of being here now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's, um, as you you know alluded to, just really being present in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people, um, Bonnie Ware, who was an Australian nurse, did some interesting research about the top five regrets of dying people, who a lot of your listeners have probably seen. It's a, a few years ago she did the research. Um, and, you know, people who are dying and really in the kind of that very challenging position of what's my life been about or what do I want to be remembered for or what's my legacy, you know, they don't talk about so much of what we worry about in our day-to-day lives. And, of course, it's very difficult when you're in the heat of, you know, you've lost your job or your relationship's in trouble or um, somebody's very sick in your family. You know, these are very important things that we get uh, focused on and we need to. We don't want to kind of throw out imagining or remembering just to be here in the moment, but we do want to have a, an active choice about where we're putting our energy uh, is perhaps the best way to say it rather than thinking about attention, thinking about, you know, how am I using this finite resource that I have every day with my mind and my body? What, where, where am I putting my energy? And is that the best use of my energy? Is that where I really like to put it? That's great. That's really great. And so what were they saying in terms of their concerns when they were when they were on their deathbeds? Oh, you'll have to look it up. I can't remember. Oh, okay. but certainly, <laughs> certainly uh, what, some of them were, you know, I'd like, I wished I'd spent more time with my friends and family. Uh, I wished I'd done more of what I wanted to do that mm-hmm. would have made me happy rather than what other people said I should do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two of them. I think there is something specific to work, but I can't remember right now what it is. Right. But I bet none of them said, I wish I worked 90 hours a week instead of exactly. Eight. exactly yeah thank you so much where can we find you online uh so the um most of as i've you know been talking about most of my work these days is with doctors so coachingfordoctors.net.au is the primary website i have another website that's just called sheriejohnson.com.au i'm on linkedin under my own name of course and on facebook uh, as skj consulting and as coaching for doctors fantastic Thank you so, so much for joining us today. And I I learned a lot. And again, it's been so great talking to you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me, Jessica. And I hope everybody feels better and better every day. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Show notes are online at betterandbetterer.com. Find a buddy to try out this episode's challenge. We want to hear how it goes. So hit us up on Instagram at betterandbetterer.com.